we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 this won't hurt a bit. What are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about medicine. Met, um, hmm. How's that any different than last time? Out of the box podcasting. Brace yourself. Actually, in the olden times, there was also physicians and they did some crazy things to people. Well, it turns you had out. to learn what not to do in order to get to what you should yeah. do. Yeah. So now we have this thing called science and we try to apply that when we are going to, um, you know, do certain therapies on patients for certain problems. We wanted to have a scientific background, but it turns out that there was a lot of things in the past that were super interesting and sort of crazy. So oh, we, thought, sure. we thought we'd talk about some of those. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Things that we used to do that have been proven potentially harmful, potentially deadly. Lobotomies. For example. Yeah, that's Do they example. still do lobotomies? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do sometimes. <laughs> Did we all just have a collective lobotomy right there? They probably do them sometimes for things like epilepsy or something. Oh. Have you heard the term... Dave, have you heard the term blowing smoke up your I have. I up have. your I bottom have. I have. using the word that starts with an A and mm-hmm. ends in S and has an S in the middle? Mm-hmm. Do you know where that comes from? Um, well, I'm guessing some sort of sketchy medical past. And you'd be correct. And but it's actually a really cool story. And in order to tell the story, we're going to bring on a, a guest to the show, Dr. Kenny Bond, who's a professor of emergency medicine at UC San Francisco Fresno. He works with me. He's awesome. And he's going to tell us about old school resuscitation using something called a smoke enema. There's this really cool thing that happened in the 18th century, which has basically led us to modern resuscitation. And that is the tobacco smoke enema. If someone knows a little bit about history, they might know that, you know, tobacco was mainly imported from New America, from the Native Americans when Columbus and everyone came over. So they take their long peace pipes and and infuse a bunch of smoke. Okay, now when you say enema, you don't mean actually smoke in the batox. Yes, smoke in the do not enter rear entry pathway. Absolutely, that's what I meant. This was actually medicinal. And they actually treated a lot of ailments, mostly GI complaints, you know, diarrhea, constipation, but they actually treated hernias and a lot of these, you know, unknown ailments in the lower core with tobacco smoke enemas. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is how does it become part of modern medicine? Yeah. And how does it lead to what uh-huh. we lead to today as resuscitation? So basically, this was known in practice by some of the physicians and other settlers who had come over and explored some of the Native Americans. And some sailors had seen this practice happen. Mm-hmm. And it actually comes from a single story. And that's how medicine often starts. One case report, quote unquote. Well, you know, we're in London. Basically, drownings happened all the time. So in one story, there's a lady who gets lost in the boat. And her husband's like, where's, where's my wife? And she's actually overboard. So they rescue from her. And she's not breathing. She's, you know, just laying there. Mm-hmm. Passing sailor goes like, oh, well, I heard, how do you wake him up? Is you actually, you know, take your pipe and insert it into her anus and infuse smoke up it. And that's actually how the Native Americans resuscitate people. And so the husband takes the pipe, basically flips it around, you know, the pipe end into her anus and basically lights it up and then blows it into her anus. And miraculously, she wakes up. No. Yes. This is amazing because this story basically gets back up to a physician, P.J.B. Brevenaire, Dr. Brevenaire. And he's from Brussels, and he publishes this case report about Uh resuscitation via tobacco smoke enema. 
first time documented and it wakes everybody up and it takes the medical world by storm. He wins this national award in resuscitation for like inve wow. inventing this because basically at that time, resuscitation was based on warming somebody up uh -huh. and stimulating them, which sort of makes sense. Yeah. kind of what we do with babies yeah. and stuff like that. So if somebody drowned, you basically warmed them up. Sometimes you put fires under them, but they got burned. So for whatever reason, he publishes this paper and it takes off. It takes off so much that not only in Brussels and other Western Europe, but in London along the docks, they hire the first lifeguard crew and the first forms of BLS is formed. And, and these, BLS? Oh, so basic, basic life, life support. support. Mm -hmm. Basic life support is formed. And so basically, these are the equivalents of young strapping men who would stand at the docks and they would be paid two shillings for every person that they rescued from the water and gave a smoke enema to. You would definitely have to pay me more than that. <laughs> and the first, you should see the pictures of these first resuscitators. Basically, if you have a fireplace and you see the old like insufflator that blows the yes. embers, yes. it honestly looks just like that. Just with wow. an area to basically burn a little tobacco and then in insert it and have a blower, basically a bellow. And there's multiple cases of this working, right? Waking people up. And the idea was it's stimulation. Well, hell yeah, of course it's stimulating, yes. right? <laughs> Some people more than others. So, yeah, it's like amazingly, it woke a bunch of these people up. So this was going all across Europe. And then eventually it was studied and controlled. And they're saying, hey, is this really helpful compared to other things? And it really didn't hold up long term. So basically by the 19th century, it was already going out of favor. And that's where we get the term, oh, you're blowing smoke up my ass. Oh. It was actually as a snake oil or a like, oh, now you're saying something that's a false truth or medical myth. Right. So we get the myth of the tobacco smoke enema. But the cool part about it is that the tobacco smoke enema led to the very next step, which we still do to this day, which we thought, hey, you know, ventilating the anus didn't seem to be very effective. But maybe if we do the exact same things to the lungs, it might be helpful. <laughs> the actual parts of the body that do the breathing. Yes. <laughs> uh, shockingly, that led to advancement in research into what we call basic life support or basically mouth to mouth resuscitation, bag valve mass, ventilation, all the things that we still do to this very day all came out of this initial quote unquote case report research. Wow. Basically. So there you have it, the tobacco smoke enema. It's amazing that America was even colonized because that seemed to be the thing that was happening on the coast, on the shores, right? Yes. The sailors get off. The Native Americans were like, smoke enemas for everybody. <laughs> and, like, and they stayed. They yeah. stayed. They should have left. Well, it is a stimulant. So it made sense. So. Right? Blow smoke up a person's bottom that's died, stimulate them. They come back. They're good to go. Didn't work. Uh, we don't do that anymore, just so you know. Mm -hmm. When you come to the ear, Jess is not going to take the pipe and Probably shove it up. Probably not. If uh, everything if does, else fails, maybe. You might want to report her to certain medical establishments <laughs> because that's not okay. But how do we do it? That is the question. If you come in and you've drowned, how do we resuscitate somebody, right. for example? What should that uh, sailor have done or suggested for said lady who was said drowned? Well, today, as Kenny was saying... Instead of insufflating the bottom. Insufflate is the medical word for blowing air into a body cavity. We insufflate the lungs. And it really, it's about early CPR. That's really the key to, to survival with good neurologic outcomes is CPR as soon as possible. So instead of putting things up the butt, we press on the chest. But we still do blow air, at least, up people's butts, right? Like, this is still a thing. Well, we do for certain procedures. Is yes. that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. You... Because when I had you, my colonoscopy, yeah, they, they did that. They it put, was, 
Yeah. Yes. 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 A little bit of air. They blow air up your rectum so that they can get a good view of your colon during a colonoscopy. Just not smoke. But not no smoke, more smoke. And not to try to resuscitate you. They're just trying to fill it up so they can take their little scopey thing and, look, and around. look around and see if you've got polyps or you know small trees or something whatever would be up your colon. Hey guys, it's Josh from one of the other Fooliboo shows, Shabam. Just want to chime in and let you know that I can tell you from first-hand experience that having air blown up your rectum does not feel good. Why do I know this? Because after college, I had the pleasure of getting a sigmoidoscopy, which is a partial colonoscopy, except I had it without anesthesia. And in the waiting room where everyone else was going to have colonoscopies, everyone kept saying, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It's not going to hurt. It'll be over before you know it. It is the longest procedure I've ever had. First of all, the pain is immediate, right? The whole thing gets stuck in there and immediately the air is getting pumped out and you feel like you're cramping, just extreme cramping. And then the second sensation is the feeling of having something snaking around in your colon and it's getting further and further up there. And when it was over, the doctor pulled the whole thing out and he said, look, this is how much was inside you. And it was like 21 inches and I didn't care because it still hurt because all the air was still in there. And he was like, oh, don't worry about it. You're going to fart and you're going to feel much better. See, just go and fart. Couldn't fart. I had to hobble home. It was very difficult to walk. I have no idea what menstrual cramps feel like. But if it feels anything like that, then, ladies, I am so sorry that happens every month. Anyway, got home. I had to lie down on the bed. I had to call my job because I was like, sorry, I'm not feeling very well today. I'm not going to come in. I'm sorry. I apologize. And then I had the best fart of my life. It was the longest, most glorious fart I've ever had. And it didn't smell at all. It, it, go, it went like this. That doesn't even do it justice. It was longer and better than that. It was just um, unbelievable. Afterwards, I felt fantastic. I was like a new person. And I called my job again as I'm coming in. And the moral of the story is, get the damn anesthesia. They do the same thing when, if you get a laparoscopic surgery, they make these little incisions and they go in with cameras and then they insufflate your abdomen with air so that they can then like blow it up like a circus tent and then look around and see what's in there. I can see how back when they would have made that connection that blowing smoke up someone's butt woke them up. I mean, that would pretty much wake up anybody, right? You would think so. If they were passed out and like, quick, get that hose and blow some smoke up that person's butt and they'd wake up like, whoa, 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 whoa what are yes. you doing? Yes, this is this is true. I've seen this effect in the emergency department. Patients come in altered who knows what has happened to them. Perhaps they've overdosed on some drug. We need to check their body temperature to make sure that they're not hyperthermic from a toxidrome. Thermometer goes in the butt. Patient wakes up right oh, yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thing. It's not like that's not how we try to wake them up. It's just secondary too. Um, can I ask why you put thermometers in people's butts versus armpits versus under the tongue versus yes. little stickers on your forehead? Yes. Because it's pretty unreliable to get an accurate temperature by other methods. Really? You can get a good temperature with if you put a Foley catheter in someone and you measure from their bladder. But just putting, you know, first of all, uncooperative person, you're not going to get a good accurate temperature putting a oh, thermometer right. in their mouth. Right. But even if they did cooperate, if you were one of the, the healthy subjects who signed up to have a thermometer put in your mouth and in your butt at the same time, you'd be surprised that those two numbers are actually sometimes significantly different from each other. Oh, interesting. We're trying to get the temperature of, it's called your core temperature, really the temperature in your organs. And so skin temperature is nothing. It's just all over the place. It's useless. So those little tabs you see that people put on foreheads, they're useless. Uh, mouth temperature is a bit better correlated with their core temperature. Armpit uh, temperatures. But if you want to know, there's only two ways to do it. 
well, there's a couple of ways to do it. So if I really wanted to know what the internal temperature, your core temperature of your liver and your spleen and those organs, I guess I could take a thermometer and shove it through your chest wall and <laughs> abdomen and into your liver and I'd be very accurate. But That's how we barbecue. Exactly. Put it right in the center. Exactly. <laughs> yes. To see if it's cooked. Meat thermometer, right. yes. <laughs> so rather than do that, we put it into organs that are close to those organs but not in them. So your rectum turns out to be very well correlated with yeah. that temperature and your esophagus. So you can, in an awake patient, for example, they can swallow this little pill with a little temperature probe on it. Oh, yeah. neat. But if you really want to know, you do. You take that steak thermometer thing with uh, <laughs> the temperature and the pointy bit and just go up to somebody and just shove it into their liver. Yeah. They'll only let you do that once, generally. Right, right. Yeah, I don't recommend that. It's not a thing we do. That's All a right. joke. Tangent. Sorry. Heroin. Who's got it? Everybody. You think that there's a heroin problem right now. Right now, in the United States, there is a huge heroin problem. It's a really big public health deal. Lots of people have died from this. We've seen lots of actors and actresses and famous people who have died from heroin overdoses or these heroin sort of substitutes like fentanyl. You may have heard about a very high-potency sort of heroin. Heroin's been around in medicine by doctors given to patients for years. Jess, please explain. Actually, this is pretty weird, but... uh not too long ago, if you had a little baby with a little cough, which happened all the time because kids are sick constantly, then your physician might give you a cough syrup. And this cough syrup was basically heroin. Oh, great. So I'm sure it worked very well yeah, I'm sure we're great. at getting the baby to sleep. Yeah. Like a wonder. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. <laughs> give, give me more. It's Wise an- little Jimmy. <laughs> Look, Jimmy's not coughing. Yeah. He's also not breathing. Right. <laughs> you can't cough. Nor breathe. This is crazy. <laughs> yes, it's it's depressing. <laughs> That's a nerd joke, in case you didn't get it. Um, so it was actually uh, marketed by Bayer. Yes, Bayer of the aspirins. And they used to make... Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? Am I going to get sued by Bayer? No, they make aspirin. And they used to make heroin cough <laughs> okay. drops. Okay, just That's all true. And it was marketed as a non-addictive cough syrup. For everyone, especially for children. Um, But you know what is perhaps more crazy than using something like heroin in the past? Okay, what? Crystal meth? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's that there is still these opioids in a lot of cough medicines today. Really? Yes. Oh, that's why they ID you when you go into into the store. Sort of. Okay, no. no. Okay, so the reason why they uh, they check your ID, at least they do in California. I don't know about all this, if that's federal or statewide or whatever. But that's because if you're buying a product with dextromethorphan, which is like the active ingredient in a lot of cold medications. And if you take an overdose of dextromethorphan, it actually mimics a like a combination of opioids and PCP and it dissociates you. And so that's why people take that. So they're checking your ID to make sure you're not buying large quantities. So then you can, you can like sell that on the street. Yeah. To get that effect, I guess to finish the loop, to get that effect, you have to ingest an enormous amount of it. And uh, it's very dangerous. And you have to sort of build up tolerance to some of the side effects of that. So it's really a crazy thing where people are drinking liters of cough syrup to get this high which is very dangerous and Mm -hmm. kids 
Don't do it. Yeah, don't it, do it. Is there a particular flavor they drink? Because I can't yeah. stand any of them. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, but, but before I tell you about the flavor, yeah. the other re- reason why this can be very dangerous is because a lot of these medicines will have something like acetaminophen. Uh-huh. That's Tylenol, oh, yeah. right? So liver. if you're not going to, yeah, exactly. You can liver get hepatotoxicity, stuff. liver toxicity if if you're not like removing that. Oh, okay, flavors. Yeah, cherry. <laughs> <laughs> Grape. <laughs> have you heard of purple drink? Purple drink? Yeah, purple drink. No. Okay. Probably because you weren't cool hanging out in the late 90s Southern rap scene. I wasn't. Me neither. I know. It's hard to believe. But there was this thing that got popular called Purple Drink and um, also popular with a lot of professional athletes, interestingly. And what this is, is it's something made from cough syrups because even today, a lot of cough syrups have codeine in them. Really? And codeine is an opioid just like heroin. Yeah. And fentanyl. Well, that's the classic, that's the classic image of Old West movies. Somebody is like totally addicted to the codeine that their local doctor gives them and they're just drinking bottles of it. And Exactly. Yeah. So you'd think that this would be crazy. Like, why would people still be prescribing cough syrups with codeine? And then there's some other ingredients that are um, that are also very sedating on top of that. So when you mix these together, it can make you feel high. And so if you take that and you mix it with some other flavors, then that's like how people make this thing called purple drink. Hmm. Yeah. And then they get high off of it. But it can be super dangerous. I'm assuming it's called Purple Drank because it was purple. Yes. Wow, I put two and two together. And drank because... Yeah, drank it. They drank it. You got it. Yeah. So you would think that this is absolutely crazy. Like, why are people prescribing codeine cough syrups? Yeah, right. So I actually looked at this because there must be a reason, right? This is crazy and then doctors are not all idiots just prescribing codeine left and right. And so I went and I looked it up and it's been studied. They've given people cough syrups with codeine and they've given people placebo, and which is just nothing, right? And then they've given people nothing. So those are the three options, right? You either get nothing, you get placebo. Which is nothing. No, it's not nothing. Placebo is not nothing. It's a thing you drink. It's a thing. Okay. Or you get codeine cough syrup. And guess what the outcome is. Who does the best? Whose cough improves? All right. Placebo. So if you got something to drink, whether it was placebo or codeine, you did a little bit better than the people who got nothing to drink. But codeine cough syrups did no better than placebo. Yeah. And I don't know which was the more fascinating part of that. The fact that we keep prescribing coding for cops that doesn't <laughs> <I don't>. work <laughs> or the fact that I can give you a drink and just by the power of suggestion say, Dave, this special drink, it's water, this special drink, just water, is going to make you stop coughing. And if you believe that, here it is, and I push it over to you, and you go, look, 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 you'll cough less. That's awesome. Because of the mm-hmm. power of the brain. Love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Love it. So is that more interesting, or is it the fact that doctors are still prescribing codeine for cough, and it doesn't work? Yeah, you know, that's crazy that people are still prescribing this, because people obviously get addicted to it. It is addicting. It's an opioid. And then people come in when they get a cough, specifically asking for it. And then I have to let them down that I'm not going to give it to them. Um, I'll tell you why this happens. I know for a fact that if I go to Ralph's and I go to the medication aisle and I have a cough and there's all these over-the-counter, I don't need a prescription, over-the-counter cough medicines, they are not going to reduce my cough. Hmm. But what do I do when I get a cold and I have a cough? I go straight there and I go, give me the one that is the strongest with the greenest package and costs the most, so it must be the best. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is basically trying to get myself a placebo. I'm trying to will myself, this right. is going to work, this is going to work. If mm-hmm. I keep coughing like this, I'm going to die. So we're not entirely rational people. And if you've had a cough and some doctor gave you codeine 
and then you had less cough, then this has made you believe codeine works for your cough. And in part it does because it's placebo. Well, you know, it probably also makes you sleep better because you're freaking high. So you probably have a good night's sleep. And then afterwards, you're like, I need more of that cough syrup. Like, that got me through the night. And then you go back and you ask for more cough syrup. Now, the problem with codeine for cough syrup is that people metabolize codeine in different ways. So some people will have a positive effect. They'll feel good. They'll be a little bit euphoria from the codeine. And some people have very dysphoric effects. A little bit of codeine and they're like, oh, my skin's crawling. I'm itchy. I'm, ah, this is terrible. So that's why uh, some people are like, I need codeine for my cough. And other people are like, don't you ever give me codeine because we metabolize it differently. Interessante. So what do I do for my cough? You can't just leave me hanging. What am I going to do? I've got a bad cough. What do I do? <laughs> You're not going to give me heroin, okay? You're not going to give me codeine. <laughs> like that. Like that cough. Like that cough? What are you going to do for that cough? <clears throat> um... I have really no. What about like a big cup of butter for this? Like whatever you want, man. I mean, believe that you feel better. Just believe. It's actually it's gonna get better. Just believe it does it. It's super frustrating because if you really look at the medical literature on this, the science behind reducing cough it is so hard, and everything that really reduces cough sedates you a lot and is kind of dangerous. So, uh, you know, a warm cup of Orange juice or milk. Or <laughs> <laughs> is that an Australian well, thing? Uh, it's got to be an Australian thing. Hot orange juice. My wife says hot toddies. Yeah. Uh, which is yeah, a little bit of alcohol warmed up and probably doesn't do anything, but it feels good down yeah. the throat, gives you a tingly sensation. Yes. But it's a big deal. I mean, I wish we had some special yeah. super thing that could reduce cough. There's some newer agents that are out on the market, and frankly, they are no better than placebo as well. There's no good thing. Uh, warmed steam, some people like that. Yeah. Uh, I wish there was something magic. There's nothing really magic, and that's a problem. Because there are some diseases like pertussis. A.K.A. whooping cough. Where you're coughing so much mm-hmm. that you can actually injure yourself, and we don't even have good treatments for that. Yeah. No, that's frustrating as a as a physician when someone comes to you with a problem, and they're like, I want to feel better. What should I take? And like, I don't want to say, like, I got nothing for you. You'll pull through. Um, so it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, here's some cough drops. And... Cough drops, yeah, maybe just some of that irritation. Right. And I tell people, I don't think the cough syrups and stuff work. But if you found one that really works for you, because everybody's different, mm-hmm. then there's no problem. But don't take too much of it. Follow the instructions. And if you really think that this cough syrup number X really works for you, I'm not going to stop you doing it because, frankly, I'll be doing it too. <laughs> Okay, Jess, tell us uh, something else that is crazy that we used to do all the time believing that it worked and probably killed more people than it helped. Yeah, so if you were sick, then this was thought to be due to an imbalance of the four humors. Right. Okay, we don't think this way anymore, but... What are the four humors? Stand-up comedy? uh, (laughs) Sketch comedy? What are they? Situational comedy. (laughs) The four humors were actually what people thought were the four chief fluids of the body. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. So if your humors were out of balance, we had to bring them back into balance. And so rather than add one in, we decided to take one out. And the easiest one was to bleed you, right? Nice, bleeding. So bloodletting. But wait, that's a thing though, right? Like leeches, like there's still types of bloodletting that happens, right? Sure, there there sure are still. um, There's still the idea of taking blood out of you to make you better. Yes, yes. It's not like thought of the same way as it used to be. It used to be just like basically anything that was wrong with you, just take out a little blood. We'll make you feel better. You know, you feel a little lightheaded. Probably a little more than a a little. And 
a lot. It, it sort of freaks me out. Like medical school back in the day was long and intensive and it was an apprenticeship and it was years and years long, but they really only had one therapy mm -hmm. and that was bloodletting. Yeah. So uh, somebody comes in with very bad cough, uh, we bloodlet. Yeah. Uh, somebody with uh, <laughs> this appendicitis is ruptured, uh, bloodlet. Yeah. Somebody very sad, bloodlet. Uh, and just sick to be, baby, uh, bloodlet. And just to be clear, your accent is like old world Europe. Old world Europe. Is not, it's, yeah. it's, is not not it's not that anyone is particular. That's not, not coming through? You know, I'm getting it. I'm just making <laughs> right. it clear that it's, it's a non-specific accent non -specific of, sort of old I'm, world. I'm thinking sort of thinking a Sigmund Freud I'm seeing you like in a cloak, mm, you know, Freud. you're in a monastery right. somewhere right. in Europe. Yes. You've yes. been gored by bull uh, blood like <laughs> Really, they did it for everything. Yes. Yeah, right. So, so George Washington is maybe one of the more famous cases of someone who was bled so much when he was quite ill. And maybe this is a whole nother conversation because his death is so fascinating. But he was bled multiple times in the last two days of his life. And that may have been part of the reason of why he ultimately died. So we don't do this anymore. We have things like antibiotics, you know, like to treat infections. How would you decide how much to take? Like how, lo how long would the doctor let it go? It, and then yeah. they were like, this bowl is filled to the top. That mm -hmm. means I'll stop it now. Or it's... They, they would often titrate to how the patient felt. So they'd start to bleed you. And then when the patient started to get a little lightheaded and start feeling kind of loopy and good, they're like, oh, that's that's good. We'll stop there. Oh. It's kind of crazy. There's only about five liters of blood in you in mm -hmm. a normal sized adult. And uh, the reports on this, they would be taken out a liter, two liters. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> My gosh, this is like being in a major car accident or having a limb severed. It's like, what were we doing? But the they give them like thing... a cookie and orange juice afterwards? Yeah. Or... yeah. The other thing that they would do to, and this is actually quite smart, is that they would monitor your pulse. Oh. Which makes a lot of sense. Right, Mel? Yes, because in general, as you lose blood, your pulse goes up. So they would feel your pulse. And as your pulse went up to a certain number, I don't know which number they used, uh, then they would stop the bloodletting. But then they'd come back the next day. Oh, Washington's still sick. I guess we more. need to right. take a little more Turn out. Turn that spigot. Today we call that shock, but <laughs> then it was therapy. So, yeah, so what's interesting about this is that we still sometimes do bloodletting for certain specific diseases. It's not very common in the emergency department, but for certain diseases like polycythemia, where you have lots and lots and way too many red blood cells... And that's a problem because you've got too many red blood cells, like mm -hmm. the opposite of anemia. It's sort of almost like a form of cancer, like you're just building up all these red cells. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's somebody you might want to take red cells out. I'll get to you. I'm good. Therapeutic oh, phlebotomy. And then another one is hemochromatosis, where you build up extra iron stores in your blood. And so we could take out some red blood cells to remove some of that iron. And then there's this other one. And it's a little bit, sounds a little bit crazy to me. I have not done this. I don't know about you, Mel. I have seen it done early in my career, but it's basically never done now. Yeah. Um, if someone with congestive heart failure comes in and these, these patients who don't have hearts that pump very effectively, they can come in with severe respiratory distress. They get all this backup of fluid into their lungs and it's really hard to breathe. And one of the therapies that you can do, and there's a lot of other ones, but one of the therapies that you can supposedly do is therapeutic phlebotomy taking out some blood, like basically bleed the patient. Hmm. For their heart. Yes. Well, for their respiratory, respiratory status. Respiratory status. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of a weird one. But Why does, what's the connection there? 
Well, well, there's, well, there's too much. The idea was there's too much fluid in this person's body and the fluid is leaking into their lungs. So if I take some blood off them, then that fluid will redistribute out of their lungs back into their blood. But we really don't do it for CHF anymore because uh, it didn't work because these people were sick. And the problem was not too much blood. The problem was where the blood was distributed. So we do this stuff to try and move it out of lungs and into other places or diarrhoeas, make you wee some of that stuff off. There's some other wacky things that people did in the past. Oh, I'm no, sure. No, I thought we covered them all. I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot more. So if this I mean, is we fun, had to have gotten to this point somehow yeah. in medical <laughs> in medical knowledge. Yeah, so we can come back to this. We can do some more yeah, of them. I, we'll just keep coming back there to it. There are so many. The things that they used to put in sodas is crazy. Oh, but that's a teaser for mm. another time. What's uh, the most disturbing thing about this is that, I don't know if you know about this, but time is a continuum. And everything in the past that's crazy seems like, how could they possibly have done that? But if we fast forward a few years, a decade, a hundred years, they're going to look back at your practice, Jess, and my practice and go, can you believe those idiots in the 21st century Mm -hmm. used to do... Bunch of Neanderthals practicing medicine (laughs) back in the 21st century. Yeah, I can't believe they thought that smacking your head against a brick wall was bad for you, those (laughs) stupid doctors. Everybody should do it. What's the matter with you? Kidney dialysis. Dialysis? Thank God, what is this, the dark ages? Here, do you swallow that? And if you have any problems, just call me. So thanks to our guests, Dr. Kenny Barn, Josh Kurz, and thanks to Jess Mason, Dave Mason, and I'm Mel Herbert. This One Heard A Bit is a production of Foolyboo Incorporated. Produced by CeCe Herbert and Bill Connor. The information you hear on This One Heard A Bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So, be sensible and keep it real. And this... Oh, this. 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 This.